Welcome to the No Ideas Original Podcast featuring Shanon, Mr. Rob, and Zane. Rob with the fly background today. What's up, Rob? How you doing? How you doing, Zane? Good. Pretty good. good, man. Pretty good, man. Uh, feeling good, man. The weather's nice down here, and hopefully it stays consistent, man. I'm loving it. How y'all doing? Everything is, I mean, wish, I wish we could say we had good weather. Our weather's terrible right now. Terrible. Oh, yeah? Lots, lots of rain and wind, but it'll be all right, you know. Before you came on, we were talking about how um, how how it's been so windy, it's tearing the siding off of houses. Man, mm. so it's like it's like the story of the three pigs, man. Like the wolf came out and blew my shit down, bro. For real. Damn. Yo, but we have a, I think I think tonight is gonna be a great, great episode. It's gonna be a wonderful conversation. You know, we have Chris A. Matthews. Uh, LMFT joining us. We also have Janelle Santana from JS Self Care joining us. And the reason why we asked Janelle to join is because we didn't want to have a conversation about family and relationships with just four dudes. We thought it was important to incorporate our sister Janelle, who's had an opportunity to be on the platform on many occasions. What's up, Janelle? How you doing? Hello, everyone. How are you guys doing? Oh, well, so thank, thank you for agreeing to participate in this discussion. Of course. Anytime you guys meet me, y'all my brothers. Y'all already know. Appreciate it. So without further ado, let's bring the man of the hour in. Chris A. Matthews, licensed marriage and family therapist, straight out of North Carolina. He told us before we got started that he was born and raised still in North Carolina. What's up, man? Thank you for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate you. Let me ask you this. What made you decide to become uh, LMFT when you could have been uh, LCSW or LMHC? Like, why why LMFT? Oh, man, I love that question out the gate. So, I chose to be a licensed marriage and family therapist because licensed marriage and family therapists are the only clinical professionals required to obtain 1500 hours of what we call systemic care so that looks like doing counseling with couples or families prior to actually obtaining the license so if i went through those other credentials you mentioned no one would mandate or authorize that i had to be supervised to learn how to do couples counseling so that was the main reason why i chose lmt okay okay um man i had a i had a I'm gonna shoot straight from the hip. I had this question. I, I mentioned this question our last show because the sister was helping the sisters get back on their feet. I came across a quote from Dr. Mayat. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Mayat, the wise sister from Atlanta. But she was talking about family and marriage more importantly. And she quoted, I guess, from something that she read. She said, from 1890 to 1960, the black marriage rate was 80%. Now, mind you, that's after civil war. That's after, that's going through the depression, Jim Crow, civil rights, right up into the Black Power movement. Now, after the Black Power movement, if we all aware of our history, things started to decline. As of 2015, that same black that black marriage rate is 27 percent. Even today, it's that low. What do you think? Uh, contributed to that, and can we get back to 80%, or at least half of that? So, the first thing that contributed to it was the welfare system. When you look at women needing to uh, obtain resources and men weren't able to find jobs and the government comes by way and says, hey, if he's not in the picture, we're going to give you this check. 
Right. That can break the family up real quick. Uh, your second question, hell yeah, we can get back to that. I think that <laughs> I'm gonna be very adamant about that. That's my story. My wife and I, we got pregnant real young. We weren't married, we were in college. I was flunking out of undergrad, wasn't doing that well. And I realized that I didn't wanna just be a baby daddy. I didn't want just to be there. And a lot of my friends were having kids and they said, Man, I'm gonna take care of mine. I was like, hold up, hold up. Right. I'm gonna take care of all of them. And I had to learn how to be a husband and I chose to be a husband to be a father. The way we get back to it starts with first, choosing to love ourselves before we attempt to try to love someone else. And that's a big piece of family. I have to make sure that I'm taking care of me so I can learn how to take care of my wife and then it trickles down to the children. That's right. That's right. That's a good point, man. I, I like that point. Man, because, you know, there, there are a lot of interpretations of why people don't, you know, why, I think just the value system alone is, is tearing us apart, man. And even... Sometimes you hear sisters say, you know, I don't need a man. That's a that's a growing mantra. I don't need a man. But you think about it, right? That type of mentality, in my opinion, is a patriarchal mentality. You know what I'm saying? I don't need I can do it by myself. I can run my business. I can do that. I mean, taking nothing away from women who probably been running businesses, but that's something a man has always done. He's been the head of the household. He runs his business. He does all that stuff. Now they got this mentality where women don't even want to, they don't want to associate themselves. What do you think that's? I, I think if we reframe the mentality and look at the energies, you got masculine energy and feminine energy. Both men and women got masculine and feminine energies. A lot of times in couples counseling, when I hear about a man describing what you what you're talking about, it's really a it's really that sense of not feeling like they got a place. So men have a place as protectors and providers. But what I like to share with men is we got to provide more than just money. Right. We got to provide emotional support. We got to provide attention, time, and energy. We got to provide that child-rearing energy. So when we reframe what providing looks like, I believe we can get back in balance with our women. And a lot of times women were put in positions to have to be it all. So a lot of it really looks like going in, communicating with your woman from a level of emotional connection. A woman will pick a fight just to have energy and feel something. If they don't feel nothing, they're gonna wanna, they wanna feel something. So it's really about, is me and us tapping into who we are, developing the opportunity to be there emotionally. And I think we can rebalance those structures that you're talking about. Jesse. Tell us this, man. I have, I have a two-part question, right? Um, a lot of a lot of men and women, they'll find the they'll find themselves uh, getting drawn into the physical or emotional affairs at work or even on social media, right? So tell us what are some of the situations to where people can curb that enthusiasm. And then number two is um, based upon people's belief, right? Um, a lot of people will hold out and not have sex with that person until they marry, and some will have sex before they get married to that to that person. So, do you find that um, based upon you know with your career and stuff, 
with the uh, marriage counseling, do a lot of that play a part as far as like when they have sex prior to getting married or get or not having sex until they get married? I love that you're talking about sex because this is an important topic that is brought up with all the couples I work with, whether they're having sex or not. Let's, let's break down sex for a second, right? Sex is an intimate act. Sex is a tool. Sex is designed to create closeness and if you're having sex with the wrong person, you're going to be close to the wrong person. So making sure you're using that tool of sex to be close to the right person. <clears throat> a lot of people are being close to the wrong person. It may be, I know I'm not going to marry this person. I know they don't have a job. I know they're not providing. I know they don't have any goals. I know they don't have any dreams. But now I'm going to have sex with them. Okay? Mm. Sex produces children. So now you have lifelong attachments to somebody you didn't want to be attached to more than one night. So it's really about making sure that before you have sex, looking at who you're having sex with. My wife and I were having sex prior to marriage. What makes our story unique is that we had the opportunity to really develop a foundation of love and care and concern. The first thing my wife and I talked about was we chose to love each other enough to break up before we cheat. So back to your first part of your question, making sure that you have a boundary in play to be responsible enough to either get help for that relationship or dissolve that relationship before you cheat. And you're right, co-workers and family members and family friends, members of you know your, your, your inner circle, those are the ones that typically people cheat with. I've had situations where people cheat with a church member. That's very common. They cheat with an employee or an employer, someone they even supervise. Because we cheat with people who we're in a proximity to. Right. Cheating is a symptom or a sign of something that's missing. When women cheat, it's usually because they didn't have a voice in the relationship. They didn't feel heard. When men cheat, it's the same. It's usually because there was a physical need not being met. But it all boils down to an emotional connection that wasn't present. So a lot of what I'm doing in the work with my couples are helping them understand, first and foremost, do you want to be in this relationship? If not, then give that person the, the opportunity to dissolve and, and transpire to someone else. But instead, what we do is we want to have our cake and eat it too, right? Mm. So that's what I, that was um, Janelle, unmute yourself, Janelle. I'm saying true. <laughs> talk, talk a little bit about, I guess, how unresolved trauma impacts relationships and impacts um, families. Out the gate, out the gate, trauma impacts relationships because you hear that phrase 50-50, that's not true. You bring in 100% of yourself into a marriage, and that partner is bringing 100% of themselves into the relationship too. So you right. bring in your undealt trauma, you bring right. in your undealt past. So right. a lot of couples I counsel, they'll do individual therapy simultaneously to be able to work through that stuff. Your partner can't be your everything. I can't be my wife's therapist. I gotta be my wife's husband. I can't be her therapist. I can't go back and process her childhood trauma. That's something she has to do. She can't be my therapist. So when two people come together and they do that work prior to being in the relationship, you can have a healthy relationship. It's not like math. Two negatives don't make a positive. <laughs> so we got, a, we got a question. Can a relationship work if one of the two, one of the two require emotionally availability and the other is enabled of giving it but shows love by providing needs more so than wants? So let's break this down for a second. 
it's not necessarily about the person not wanting to give themselves emotionally. Some people just don't know how. And when a person slows down and learns how, because we, we learn from our parents and our family of origin. So if you never saw your father or your mother express love to you in the emotional sense, and a father might have only expressed love by saying, I got these groceries and these bills paid, that's love enough. And then that husband goes off and gets married, and the woman's like, why don't you touch me outside of sex? Why don't you tell me that I look good? Why don't you give me those verbal affirmations? And then you ask the husband, well, I never saw him do that to my mother. Or I never saw him even do that to me. He never told me he was proud of me. So a lot of the work isn't necessarily saying a person's unable to do it. They may just not know how to do it. How do you, um, I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, um, a lot of the stuff, you know, I think being on the outside is easy to observe, but working with clients sometimes it can be difficult to help them develop insight into what actually is transpiring. So what are some of the interventions that you use to help clients actually begin to develop insight? The first intervention that I use to help couples develop insight is the sender-seever technique. Within my first session, that's what I'm going to be doing with couples. It's a very simple opportunity for partners to focus on listening versus speaking. I have one partner be the sender, the other partner be the receiver. Communication has to be like driving down a one-way street in downtown. You have to process all of what that person's saying. And with every time, when every time I do this, this intervention, the couple will say, wow, this is the first time I wasn't thinking about my rebuttal because I had to be able to respond back to my partner verbatim to what they said. So if I'm thinking about what I want to say, I can't do the intervention because it requires that they listen to exactly what their partner says. And through that process, couples realize for the majority of their relationship, they weren't listening. Right, right. You know, and I, and I find that, you know, what I tend to believe, I, I, I observe and listen. That's the way I learn. That's my laws of learning. Look, listen, and observe is how I learn. Um, and I don't read minds. <laughs> I can't read nobody's mind at all. You know, so how important is it to have a strong foundation before commitment? Foundation is everything. My wife and I, we had the opportunity of starting our relationship long distance. So we didn't have the luxury of not communicating. And one of the first things I shared to my wife was I said, hey, we're building something here. And if you think about a skyscraper, right, that skyscraper has to be on a foundation is really deep into the ground. They have to anchor metal bolts to the bedrock. So the, the taller the building, the farther down the foundation that building. So if you have a lifelong marriage, think about for the rest of your life. You know how deep that foundation has to be? And that foundation has to be built on establishing rules and boundaries to govern how you're gonna operate. And that's what licensed marriage and family therapists do. We believe in what we call second order change approaches. So it's not about you not arguing, it's how you argue. It's not about you not getting upset, it's how you express being upset. That's the foundation of the relationship. I've never called my wife a bee or cussed her out because the foundation didn't support that. From the day one, we had that conversation on what we were or weren't going to say to each other. So we argue, like most couples. Yeah, most couples do. In a way where we ain't ending the marriage off the argument. Let me call somebody her name and see what happens. We ain't throwing plates back and forth and cursing everybody out. You know, and, and it's funny you mentioned that because that's how my wife and I started. We started as a long distance relationship and then I eventually moved to Connecticut. 
And it's funny, right? Because I, I did. I um famous plug. I don't know if you can see that, but I got the brother's book on my on my joint. But there was one. There was a part in there about illness. Now I'm a, I'm a, a two-time receiver of a kidney, and when I lost my kidney, my friend at the time came to see me, who is now my wife. And she put her kids aside. She came to see me, and then eventually, you know, we, you know, we got married or whatever. But what 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 struck me was a sense of commitment and her her drive to want to see me well. You know what I mean? And then, you know, when I did lose the kidney and I had to go to dialysis and all that, I still tried to go to work. I still, in my man mind, I still gotta, I still gotta be the man. I gotta get up. I still gotta provide. I gotta, I gotta pay. I have to do all those things happen. And then I got to a car crash. And then my wife, she, my wife, then, then my wife, she was like, sorry, buddy, you gotta stop working. So that dynamic came, to, she became the total provider. You know what I mean? And I read something in your book where sometimes that don't go, it doesn't go that way. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes it, it comes to a point where a woman might feel like, this shit is too much, man. You know what I mean? I, I need some help. I need someone to come for me because you used to do it, now you can do it. And I'm still reading it, and I'm just like, wow, he touched on that, and I actually lived that. You know, thank God that we didn't have to go to therapy because we talked it out. We communicated, we communicated openly, you know, we very transparent, and here we are. Now, I got my second kidney, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm able to, to, to help um, do some financial things, but when my, my role changed into being being the stepdad that went to work, now I'm the stepdad that's taking kids to school, taking kids to, to basketball practice. Now I'm picking them up at parties. Wherever they need to go, I got the school bus ready. I'm taking kids wherever they need to go. You know, I'm sweeping floors, I'm doing windows, I'm doing the lawn, I'm mowing lawns. I got a vegetable garden out back. You know what I'm saying? Now all my responsibilities became domestic. And it almost became a role reversal. Mm -hmm. But in my opinion, that's what you do for your partner. Right. Now for me, she put, her, she put all that weight on herself to make sure that I still had what I needed, you know what I'm saying? I said, you know what? Man, I'm gonna be, be the stay-at-home dad. I'm gonna put my apron on, I'm gonna get the mop bucket, and I'm just gonna handle it. And it'll be actually be a salute to all women out here who are domestic women who stay at home and do the house, because it's work. Yeah. I ain't gonna say for you, son. Cleaning floors is work. It is work. Cleaning floors, mopping, sweeping, vacuuming, you name it, going grocery shopping, 100% work. Mm -hmm. That's the role I felt. So I appreciate seeing that in the book. I'm gonna make sure I really study that part about your book, man, which is a great book too, bro. I'm glad you mentioned that I appreciate you because what I talk about is you get through that section further. There's a couple I give an example that I counsel, and the gentleman he had multiple sclerosis, mm -hmm. and it That's impeded his ability to um, perform sexually. And because he couldn't perform sexually, he stopped performing in all areas of life. Wow. wow. And once that happened, he shut down and his wife ultimately ended up cheating on him. But luckily they were able to repair the marriage because he began to provide in so many other ways. Right. And then also with the advancements of technology, he actually identified some uh, techniques or approaches that he could apply to his body physically to create an erection so he could then produce 
So I always I call them where there's a will, there's a way couple. It took it took his wife cheat on him for him to change his whole life around. He was like, not my watch. <laughs> I lose my baby like that. And you can you can get the book from ChrisAMatthews.com, right? Yep. ChrisAMatthews.com. The book's available there, and it's also on Amazon. And I have audio version, Audible. So Audible. It's also on um, the, the tablet, like my man's showing, and also the hard copy. Okay. Speaking on speaking on marriage from a worldwide cultural perspective, right? Uh, we always hear about other cultures having fixed marriages, whether Indian, whether Caucasian, so on and so forth, Asian. Um, do you feel that uh, that's one of the main hindrances is for barriers that as far as us as a, as blacks as a culture that we don't have uh fixed marriages opposed to all the other cultures or do you think it's I, something I think else look i think if we so, so that was such a comprehensive question i want to break it down with my answer but the first thing we got to look at is is one black folk we're one of the few people on the planet that were displaced from their culture like, like we recreated our own subculture. Black American is a spinoff of other cultures that we've come together, right, to create. So when you talk about Indian and those other people, they still have their foreign native cultures intact, right? right so that's, right. Uh, that's the biggest piece. But to that point, if you, I'm, I'm currently rereading The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And Stephen Covey talks about how in the book, arranged marriages have a great success because of the mentality in which the, the partners approach the marriage with. It, it's not the person that makes the marriage, it's the process that makes the marriage. So learning how to be selfless, learning how to do what Mr. Rob just shared when it comes to being flexible and malleable enough to redefine those roles to provide, learning how to listen before you speak, all of those characteristics, learning how to have structure in play where you're gonna be committed that's gonna supersede the selection of the partner. It's more about the process because if you think about a marriage, you're constantly changing. It's a moving target. I'm not the same person my wife married 16 years ago. She's not the same person when she was in college. We done had kids and you know different jobs and businesses and you know I was broke. We got a little money. Like all these things change, so that's gonna shape your personality. We're just a combination of our experiences. Right. So despite who that person was when you first met them, if you can learn how to grow together, right? We talk about in my book, growing apart. That's a common theme, right? We just grew apart. That's real, right? There's a gravitational pull always working to separate you from your partner. It could be kids, it could be work, it could be esteem, it could be a midlife crisis, it could be the death of a parent. Something's always working to pull y'all apart. The process of learning how to stay together is the marriage. Mm. No, I'm like, he is so correct. So I am happily divorced. And <laughs> the reason why I say that, because we're best friends. We were meant to be in the relationship that we were in. We came with baggage, which, in, which, which was our traumas, undealt with traumas. And that's why as, you know, a social worker, I say we all need therapy because any relationship we come in, there's something that happens, something in our subconscious that's there. 
and a situation or an event brings it out. And you may have said, and you know, we're all African-Americans. We know the, the thing of getting over things. We never were taught to get through things. Right. That happened to, all right, get over it. That happened when you were eight, get over it. But what I started to realize is this stuff is showing up in my behavior. So what I did was I have a therapist and I'm very proud of it, but I got a therapist that was more like who I am. And when I dug in my Hispanic culture, because I'm more of a Hispanic, I said, what matches for Hispanic? And a lot of people don't know this, but Italians do. We have similar cultures. We have similar beliefs. So my therapist is Italian. And sometimes it offends why you don't have a black therapist because a black therapist, I'm not all the way black. Right. I mean, I'm, of course, the color, but I have a culture. I have a culture, which and I had to speak with somebody who's relatable. So I tell people is we need therapy too. A lot of people spill their stuff on us. I mean, today it's nasty in New York. I'm running around going to this home who was sexually abused, this home who was beaten, this home. So all of that trauma came on me, whether I asked for it or not, because I'm helping people. So on Friday, that's why also I use my therapist on Friday, is because of those things. And me and my husband, we went to therapy twice. We went to marriage and family therapy. We just, marriage and family counseling, excuse me. We just were not meant to be in a love ship. Hmm. We were meant to be apart, but together. So we parent amazingly and others may say how y'all do that i'll be like what up baby daddy what up baby mama and not in a derogatory way it's more of this is the one who had my son and he respects me he respects me so much that he if his wife was to get out of pocket he he's like you can't do that that's my son's mother and then her and i grew a relationship and that's what makes all three of us parent my son because she of course boundaries have to be there this woman had my child she is raising my child something i'm not doing as much as i want to because i live in another state i live in jersey and she lives in new york so marriage and family counseling taught us that every every time even though you're going here it doesn't mean that you guys are meant to stay here as a unit this means that you need to work on things and then make the so hard a decision that no, we're not meant to be in this space together, but we're meant to have another position in each other's life. Because during the marriage, the counseling, I questioned, well, should I have had a child with him? And the guy said, yes, y'all were meant to have that child. Look how y'all parent that child. So sometimes it's just knowing that this is the space for us and this is what we're willing to work at or this isn't a space for us but this was a lesson and a blessing the blessing the child and the lesson is get to learn yourself and get to know that you need help and he needs help so all three of us have therapists my son has a therapist he has a therapist i have a therapist and they're not the same therapist but that's what we needed so 
when God blesses me with my new husband, I'm not coming with so much baggage because I was able to sort out that baggage. And it was a lot of baggage. It wasn't just, I'm coming here, I went to school, I'm a social worker, I'm this, I'm that. No, it was the breakdown. Okay, you could be all those things before you really as an individual. And that's how I got the concept of who am I? Because I would say a mother, a this, a that. That's not who, the person that I am. So through therapy, that had to be breaking down of who am I opposed to what I do. So I want to say that, you know, everybody's not meant to be and we're holding on to something that, oh, I'm holding on to this person for the child. I don't want a child to be without a parent, but are we affecting that child too? Because that's what my parents did. They stayed together and my father had all these children. Right. Yeah. He had all these children. So my mother and father stayed together from the age of 16, but it was so toxic that me and my siblings got in the same exact toxic relationship. Yeah. Wow. Um, Scott Mitchell, finish your question. I see your question. He, he got a question in the chat, but you didn't finish it. Thanks for thanks for sharing that, Janelle. For, um, for many years, I worked, I worked in foster care, and one of the common things that I would see was parentification. And a lot of times I've seen parentification as a result of the, a parent having issues as it relates to substance abuse. How does, a, how does a family go about restoring hierarchy when situations like that occur? I'm so glad you asked that question because uh, I, I too was a parentified child and being the youngest of three, my father was a functional substance user and highly educated. He was an engineer to use cocaine and alcohol marijuana every day so I think the way you, you restore that has to be for there to be a release just speaking for myself personally being able to do my own work and as I got older I realized that my responsibility wasn't for my parents I talk about in my bio how my mother and father got divorced and I was the youngest of three so my brother and sister were at college and they would come, they would come to me with their marriage issues. I was the, the translator for mom and dad, and what helped me release that now is when I got older and I started my own family unit. I realized that was no longer my responsibility, and that work took place in counseling. And, and one of the things Janelle just said that was so important, she talked about who she was in terms of her identity and who she is. Right, I, I'm not the translator for my parents. I'm not responsible for my parents. And breaking right. that code of responsibility for my parents allowed me to get through that process. Another thing you mentioned, you know, I really appreciate. Going through is different than going around and over. When you go through a car wash, you get wet too. Right? You can't go around the car wash. You go through a car wash. So when you go through therapy, right? That's why a lot of folks don't go through therapy. They attempt therapy, but going through therapy is different than attempting therapy. So I'm really thankful you mentioned that point. It's because the way we were conditioned, not to make an excuse, but it has a lot to do with what we were told. And, you know, you don't need a therapist. You don't need nobody to talk to. You need a beating. You know what I'm saying? You need your part work. So these were the things that, you know, growing up in our coaches, these are the things that we heard. So when we're trying to break down an adult that's our age or older, it's extremely hard because what was ingrained inside of them as children. 
you don't talk, you don't tell people your business. They're gonna take you away. And then you, well, it used to be called BCW. BCW gonna come, better not tell nobody. So a lot of things were hidden and then we never, uh, we got over it. That's what we did. Family secrets. Scott Mitchell says, how can one build a future with a partner does not, that does not keep their word and or follow through on agreements? So the only thing you can control are your responses. You can't control another person's actions. So the first thing would have to be to establish a boundary of understanding, to share with that person, hey, look, if you're not choosing to keep your word, then you're basically saying you don't want to choose to be in this relationship. And I break that down in the sense of you can't make a person want something that they don't want. A lot of it starts with identifying what the issues are. If that person is choosing not to be honest, it may have roots and origins associated with how they were brought up, but that's still their responsibility to do that individual work to create a space where openness can exist. Because openness is the doorway to honesty. If you can't go through the doorway of openness, then you can't be honest. And the first person you have to be open with is yourself. Mm -hmm. That's a fact. That is a straight fact. Why is there so much stigma behind therapy and counseling? I think a lot of stigma around therapy and counseling, depending on the culture, begins with the premise that one is weak if they can't handle their own issue or problem. Also, this premise that we, we believe in, in, you know, those that are Christian-based or faith-based, it's what well, we go to the pastor. And that's even part of my own story. My wife and I, we, you know, got pregnant young. And we went to the pastor. The pastor gave us the best prayer in the world. But guess what? After we left, we had no tools, direction, guidance, or counsel on how to be married. Just prayer. <laughs> Just prayer, right? So I always like to share this story about prayer. You might have heard of this story about the guy. It starts to rain, and he, they say it's a big hurricane. Hurricane's coming. He said, man, God got me. Water starts to come up to his ankles. He says, you know, someone, hey, man, you want to you wanna get in this truck? Nah, God got me. The water comes up to his waist. He goes upstairs. God got me. He's on the rooftop of a building. The coastal guard comes and says, hey, come here. I got a plane for you. You want to come in? Nah, God got me. He goes to heaven and he says, God, what happened? I thought you got me. He said, what you mean? I said, Three bystanders, a truck, a plane, a boat. I did have you. You just didn't choose to get on. That's right. So if God is sending you a well-trained clinician or a therapist or a counselor, get on the boat. That's God sending somebody for you to get the help. God does have you. He has you through people. He has you through his ability to send you what you need when you need it. Right. You just have to be wise enough and aware enough to know that those are signs for you to jump on and look at yourself. And we, you know, we talk a lot about knowledge and self on here, man. I think that's one of the most important things. Every every listener, listener, that is so important, man, to know yourself before you get to know anybody else because you bring, you said, you bring them one hundred percent of yourself, not fifty percent, not thirty percent, not eighty percent, one hundred percent, all your traumas all of your backlash and I had to learn that too I know early in life I had to go to therapy because I was dealing with a situation where you know you can't raise your voice at me because you're not going to win my voice is much louder 
and it carries much further. And once you raise your voice, I'ma go loud. You know what I mean? But then I learned, like you said, it's not how you react, it's how you respond. So that's when I started to learn to observe and watch and listen. And now I know how to respond. So even if you're irate, okay, I bring it down and I talk so. You know what I mean? You catch more greens with honey than you do you do vinegar. So now, and every now and then I catch myself because it's a trigger. And that trigger comes from my childhood. My mother would always scream, rah, rah, rah. And I always wanted to respond, but I was always timid because that's mom. She's coming at me with this heat. Yo, she's coming with this heat. And I would tell myself, when I become an adult, she ain't gonna talk to me like that. Ain't nobody gonna be able to talk to me like that. And carry too, until I got to with a woman who would talk to me and reminded me of my mother. And I was like, yo, that's how my mom speak to me. No, I'm a grown ass man. You ain't gonna be talking to me like that. And then, and then my voice, and I know my voice projects. Sometimes my voice can scare somebody, especially when I'm mad. So I like, I never like getting that way. So now I've learned, very calm, bro. Listen, know how to respond. And most times, just respond. Sometimes I respond, I'm like, okay, all right. You said what you said. And I don't give no more feedback, man. I'll just leave it alone, man. There's one thing that I want you to touch on as you guys are males and I'm a female and I preach this a lot is we have to ex stop expecting others to know how we want to be treated. A lot of us say you should know and you never had the conversation. Yeah. Um, what I noticed in my relationships, I always figured that cheating was a no-no, so they should know, right? But that's not necessarily true, because if they should know, my father should have known, right? Right. So we have to, you know, it's a thing where we're in these relationships and we say, well, you should know. And the guy, the guy or the girl, whoever you're in a relationship, they be like, how would I know you never told me? And then people get upset about that. But it's a real response. It's an answer to your question. How would a person know? And I want you guys to touch on that because I know there's listeners out here and they need to hear from you guys opposed to us women because I preach it all the time. Nobody should know anything unless you tell them. But they don't get it like that. So what is your perspective on that? So you're speaking about mind reading. And <laughs> a, a lot of the mind reading comes with being comfortable in the relationship. Mm -hmm. So in order to negate mind reading, remember that your partner is constantly changing. And one of the things I talk about in the book, I have a really large section on mind reading because there are different types of mind reading. And you make a good point. We expect people to treat us the way that we want to, that we want, um, that we would treat them, right? Or excuse me, we, we, the golden rule, treat people the way you want to be treated. Mm -hmm. I believe in the platinum rule, treat people the way they want to be treated. So if we are focusing on that golden rule, we're trying to basically tell someone you want what I want. It's not always mm -hmm. the case. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So a lot, a lot of the mind reading has to go away with, or it can go away with, what do you want? But before you can determine what you want, you have to understand yourself. And that's why it always goes back to self-love. Knowing you well enough to then be your partner's teacher. You have to teach your partner, and then you have to be your partner's student as well. 
and I talk about I, I do some funny TikTok videos. I, I jump into a lover boy mode on TikTok, and one of the things that I'll do is I'll speak with phrases for couples to hear, and one of them in particular is to tell your partner. You know, I get my bare white on when I do it, but I'll say, yeah, yeah. Look. <laughs> a couple of them, bro. I see the couple. <laughs> right. You know, a, a lot of it's about understanding that you have to teach me about you. I want to earn a PhD in you, and you're the only one that can teach me that. That's right. Can a, can a person with mental health conditions like ADHD or anxiety succeed in a relationship? It can be frustrating for the person suffering from and the person involved with this. Oh, it goes to the health stuff. I think that goes to the health part of your story. Okay, bro. 100%. Uh, I, I personally have, have been battling with general anxiety for several years. One of the things that helps me succeed in the relationship is first and foremost treating my own, my own anxiety. And I treat my own anxiety by way of mental health counseling and self-care. Knowing when to cut things off, knowing what my triggers are, what, what hikes and spikes the anxiety. Then once I figured that out for me, I communicated to my partner. And then she knows how to adjust accordingly based on what I need for us to be successful as a couple. So a lot of it starts with doing that individual work and then communicating to your partner what you learned. Because when you teach yourself how to manage the anxiety and ADHD, then you can teach someone else how to support that work as well. Can the alpha male and woman with strong masculine energy survive and prosper together? Absolutely. They just have to know how to balance it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a book. It's called The Way of the Superior Man. And that book is all about masculine and feminine energies. And one of the things I appreciate about the book is the author talks about how women are physiologically built different than men. Women's emotions can go up and down a lot quicker. The reason why is, and John Gottman talks about this too in his work, Seven Principles of Making Marriage Work. He says men were built, if you go back in the prehistoric ages, as hunters and gatherers. You couldn't even fight and saber tooth tigers and then all of a sudden come down. So when a man gets up, it takes him a long time to come back down historically because that's how we're built. We weren't supposed to be in the jungle fighting in war and then all of a sudden we're like I don't feel like it anymore <laughs> <laughs> it ain't gonna work so what, what men will do we'll stonewall we'll prevent getting up there and we'll we'll tell you we'll give you warning man don't have me get up man come on chill out like we're warning because we're telling whoever it is when we get there we're gonna stay there right. it's coming back down right so a lot of it is managing that masculine energy and a lot of times women's masculine energy is built up and it's usually attached with an emotion. So in counseling, I help the couple slow down and identify the emotion. And if a woman uses her femininity toward a man, it's gonna pull him down real quick. If you go over to your man, if you're a woman and you are very sensual and you're soft, think about it. Men will give you whatever they want, out, whatever you want out of sex. <laughs> clearly, clearly we respond well to feminine energy. <laughs> you're a buddy after that, bro. Oh, man. What you want? We be asking you. Hey. You know? <laughs> uh, let, me, let, me, let me ask you this. Um, I'm not sure how active you are on social media, but you see a lot now on social media about things like one of the ongoing conversations that I see 
is a conversation about um, men and women going 50-50 on bills. They talk, there's a lot of talk around that. Do you believe that social media has changed the expectations of relationships? And if so, why? Absolutely. Um, you can look at, so I, I do a lot of reading. I'm always reading books. I, I, I do a lot of audibles, so audio books. And um, there's a book written by a divorce attorney out of New York. The book is called, If You're In My Office, It's Already Too Late. And everything she talks about in the book, he talks about in the book how Facebook single-handedly changed the landscape of marriage and relationships. Because it gives you access to stuff you don't need access to. You don't need access to all your boyfriend, ex-boyfriends and girlfriends. You don't need that. Uh, you don't need access into everybody's life. And you don't need to see pictures of models and people that are liking your post and, and giving you that affirmation you're not getting from your partner. <clears throat> it seems to be like this competition. And I believe in social media. I think it's a great tool, but any tool can be abusive, right? So managing the social media, understanding what each platform is designed for. LinkedIn, for example, is designed for business connections. I love LinkedIn. Facebook is designed to connect with family and friends that might be afar. Instagram, inspiration, entertainment. So if you rely on your Instagram as your couples counselor, that might be a problem. <laughs> so, so knowing how to use the social media to serve you versus it serving it versus you serving it right so allowing the social media to be a servant to you you're not serving it mm. I, I really want to chime in on this um why is a great answer because one it's not therapy two you have to ask yourself what are you on this platform for like i'm on social media for business purposes so when I see the, like people say, take a break from social media. Well, I got to take a break. I could, I could unfollow and block the things that I don't want to see in my feed. So um, it's a lot focused on why, why, why take a break? You need a break from it. No, you need a break from what you're watching because everything we watch, we believe, right? If, if we looking for cats jumping one, if you keep seeing this post that a cat is jumping over the moon, you're going to take your butt outside to see if this cat is really jumping over the moon because 5,000 people done said it and put it on their, their news feed. So what I say is unfollow, unblock, and then ask yourself, why are you on this platform? Like, why are we on this platform? Because the No Ideas Original Podcast is worth my time. If you guys were doing shits and giggles, it wouldn't be worth my time. I would not be here with you guys. I may watch it when I want entertainment, but I'm on here for a reason. And once you ask yourself, if you're on Facebook to connect with your family and old friends, then that's what you use Facebook for. Um, it's not your therapist. And you don't need to be watching fights with kids and all that. Like all of that stuff, you won't see that. If you look at my feed, if you grab my phone, you're going to be like, Dad, this is inspiration all day because that's what I'm about. I'm about self-care. So I think people more need to focus on what are you downloading this app for? And that's any app. I downloaded LinkedIn because I want to connect with different coaches and therapists. That's why I'm on it. I downloaded TikTok because I want to reach the youth and the elders. That's why I do TikTok. So you have to ask yourself and, and give yourself a conscious answer. 
Like I'm on here to watch people fight or I'm on here to watch people argue or the debates or whatever. And then you go from there, but it is a tool. Everything in life is a tool. Money is a tool. Relationships is part of a love ship and a tool. Like what, what are you gonna get out of this? Why are we together? And then once you get those answers, then you'll know why you're in different spaces and different places. You know, it's no more, I'm going to build my own table. What I realize is I need people. I love people. Oh, I'm going to sit at a table by myself. No, I'm going to sit at a table with like-minded people like you guys. I'm going to sit at your table and we're going to build and grow. When we leave that table and we finish that plate of food, our bellies and our minds are gonna be full that we're gonna go out in the world and be like, that conversation I had was so dope, I'm gonna start a business. Or that conversation was so dope, I'm gonna hire a therapist. That conversation that we're having on this station makes people wanna say, you know what, therapists are really dope. Like, there's some dope people. Let me connect, let me, let me see what this is really about. And what I learned today is, I gotta go through stuff and I gotta stop getting over it. So when I go to the next therapy session, I'm going to stick it out and I'm going to figure out what it is all about and how can I use that tool, which is the therapist, to help me get along in my life and what my growth and involvement means for me. So, yeah. Yeah, Zane. You're on mute, Zane. While we waiting for Zane to unmute, should individuals have, have expectations a- for their relationships? Get up, yeah, Zane, do your question first. I have a question for Chris and Janelle, right? Do you feel, okay, number one, we all know the universal language is music, of course. And music plays a very essential part in our everyday life. Um, Do you feel, well, I don't know how I feel, but I'm going to ask y'all. Do y'all feel that from the 70s to the 90s, when you had music about love, opposed to the stuff from the 2000s up to now, where it's about lust? How much do you feel that that affected our culture as far as relationships? Yeah, I, I think you make a great point. Music is the soundtrack for life. And when we listen to music that talks about the deep-rooted content associated with love, one, one of my favorite singers is Sade, and she has a line that I recite a lot in therapy, and she says in a song, I want you, but I want you to want me too. So those lyrics speak to more than just the physical nature or the physical body. And it talks about looking at a person beyond just who they are sexually, but who they are mentally and emotionally. And I believe the music has changed because that music from that genre or that age period or that gap of period, you talked about 70s to 90s, it required you to be vulnerable. You don't have to be vulnerable to smack it, beat it, hit it, take it, all that, right? There ain't no vulnerability in that. It's almost like you don't have to think at all. So so that's really the biggest piece. As we've lost connection with each other, the music has lost connection with our souls as well. That's a good point. That's a fact. Should, should individuals have expectations on their relationships? Absolutely. <laughs> Yes, that should be an expectation. Expectations is another word for expectations of boundaries, right? Like, you need to know what the relationship is for. Janelle made a good point. Relationships are tools. What, what are you, what are you, what are you using that relationship for? 
Right. I, I'm using my marriage to be a better me. My wife has made right. me better. And this is something I share in my book. I talk about a lot. If your relationship doesn't provide you more than what you have by yourself, then what's the point of a relationship? If your relationship is taking away more from you than what you have by yourself, then what's the point of the relationship? Those are two centralized questions that everyone needs to ask. The relationship should be an enhancer. It should be an add-on, not a takeaway. Right. A marriage adds on to it. We're, we're stronger. If you look at a Jay-Z and Beyonce, they're stronger together, right? Than they would be apart. That's the goal of the relationship. And it doesn't mean there's not an independence. It doesn't mean that there's not a differentiation of self. I believe in being your individual person, but at the end of the day, if you can take you, 100% of you, and 100% of them, and it equals 200%, you can create and do more collectively than you can do apart. And that's the beauty and the value of a marriage and a relationship, to produce more together than what you could have had by yourself. Modalities, let's talk talk a little bit about models. What are, what are the models of choice that you use um, for family work and couples work? EFT, Emotional Focus Therapy. Within seconds, it rolls off my tongue because one, therapeutically speaking, it's the most reputable when it comes to working with couples. It helps individuals get to the root of the emotion. Sue Johnson is the creator of the modality and she has a book called Hold Me Tight. Hold Me Tight breaks down the stages of EFT. So that's something I, I strongly advise. I also do a lot of contextual therapy. Contextual therapy looks at debts and ledgers. It's a therapeutic modality that's not used as often, but I like to use it especially with minorities because we have a lot of cultural debts and cultural ledgers that we're progressing and we're passing on from family to family. Right. And I know from a billing perspective, I don't do any third-party billing, but a lot of agencies will do third-party billing and cognitive behavior therapy, CBT. CBT is great, but it's really from a psychoeducational perspective. The difference between CBT and EFT is you're really tapping deep into those emotions and feelings. And Sue Johnson talks about attachment wounds. I like to use the analogy or the example that when someone stabs you and there's that knife walking within, you know, if you're walking around with that knife in you, you can't begin to heal until you pull that knife out. And that's really what identifying and working with attachment wounds looks like. Understanding when that partner hurt the other partner. It could be something you said or did that you might not even realize and your partner's walking around with that thorn stuck inside of you. And that's really what the therapy looks like. Pulling that thorn out and being able to heal and rebuild. Yeah, yeah. For, for, for our viewers, can you talk a little bit about what a genogram is and the importance of using genograms in family work? Every session I do a genogram within the first session. The genogram is essentially a model that is encompassed of more of a family map across three generations. The goal of the genogram is to help the clinician and the client see that family structure, see the trends, the origins in terms of the themes. So for example, I can do a genogram with a couple where infidelity is present and I can look at how the father, the father, father, and the father's father, the father all cheated or substance use, or tracking mental health issues, or enmeshments, or cutoffs. You talk about parentified children. You talk about the sibling order, or if divorce is prevalent, if marriage is prevalent, religion, economic status, income. I mean, it really goes across and gives you an aerial view 
of that client, but more importantly, it helps the client see themselves on paper as well. For the EFT, we have somebody ask, does it work for a person who claims they're unemotional? So the same way you cannot not communicate, you can also not not be unemotional in the sense that um, you're gonna feel something. Now, sociopaths, right? Like you have a, that's a disorder not to feel. <laughs> so, so if a person doesn't feel, then, then, then personally, I don't believe they are capable to be in a relationship. Feeling is a prerequisite in my opinion, to, to tap into humanity, which should be a requirement to be another person. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, EFT does help. Now, I do believe men in particular, right, especially men, I'm going to speak for us, and I said it earlier, if we haven't been shown how to communicate outside of being mad or sad because someone died, right, men communicate being sad because someone died, happy or excited, and that, and that, or, or, or angry and mad like that that's it we don't have a lot of emotions so one of the techniques and everybody listening can do this if you simply go to your phones google or safari and you type in emotional feeling words pdf or feelings word chart you'll have a document come up all different types and expanding your emotional word vocabulary allows you to tap into how you feel. Sometimes you ask someone how they feel and they say, I don't know. And if you can put words in front of them, they can look at that word list and go, that's what I feel. Yeah. That's what I feel. So identifying the emotions is different than not feeling the emotions. Yeah. We have them, we just may not be able to identify. Yeah, it's, I think that a lot of times that comes down to being expressive, having the ability to express. And sometimes I think vulnerable also, being able to be vulnerable enough to share some of those um, emotions. Why do you think in particular uh, black and brown communities I would say have, you know, have challenges when it comes to actually setting boundaries? And I'm talking about setting clear boundaries. I think I think it, it goes across all people, but just speaking of black and brown, I believe it's a matter of feeling like we're going to miss something. And I say that from the sense of if we're setting boundaries with our families. Are, are we missing something? <clears throat> are, we, are we missing the ability to be respectful? Right? Like, I do a lot of family work where the boundary is not there because it's, well, I was taught that the mother's always right, no matter what age. Respect your mother, respect your father. Um, I, think, I think we don't see the value in that boundaries actually create more than what they take away. They create more closeness than they do distance because I'm going to be willing and able to be around a person I'm more comfortable with. That's what the boundary provides. The opportunity to have a higher concentration of comfort because at that point you can begin to trust. And and I talk about this too in a lot of my videos. The first fight my wife and I got in, we were dating and she hung the phone up on me. And I simply Ooh. just called her back and said, hey look, I'm going to mess up and say some dumb stuff probably. I'm learning. I'm a work in progress. Just don't hang up on me. Tell me that you gotta go because you're flooded. You need time to process and give me a time to call you back and, and we'll go from there. And I promise you, I won't hold you hostage. I won't call you back 15 times. I'll give you that boundary of the space to deal with it. To this day, 16 years later, my wife's never hung up on me. Now she's told me many of times before, Chris, I gotta go. I gotta go. It's too much. I'll let you go. You come back. Right, right, right. 
you, you bring up you bring up a good point with that in terms of um, that boundary. I think because what happens sometimes is we become so our anxiety kicks up and we want to resolve whatever the matter is. So it becomes difficult to actually accept that a person is not able to kind of resolve whatever the issue is in that moment. Not realizing what the person is actually saying is I need to process, let's table this, I need to process it. And then when cooler heads prevail or after we've had time both to process it, then we can come back and have the discussion. But I, I do think a lot of times that is about kind of, you know, one person hearing that another person is rejecting them and they don't want to resolve whatever the matter is. Thanks. And a lot of that I, I, I sum up in a phrase I tell a lot of couples, no doesn't have to mean never. No just may mean not right now. Yeah. Yep. What's that? Fi fixing over feelings, right? Or fixing. Men, men want to fix things quickly. Yeah, men want to fix. <laughs> women want to feel. But fixing is feeling. Right? It's, it's feeling, right. Yeah. Or feeling is fixing. So if you feel, you will get the fix. And a, a lot of that comes by way of just understanding that a lot of times we think we got to get it all out. <laughs> some, of, some of the best arguments with my wife can transpire over a week. And, and we know how to compartmentalize it, right? We're still going to bed together, we're still speaking. We can say, all right, this is the time we're gonna process it. So learning that you may not get your solution in one conversation. You know, there was a situation where we were changing my son's school. And it took three or four days of back and forth to, depict, to, to figure out which school we were gonna put them in. Big decisions take time. You can't just go in and make a life altering decision or a parenting decision sometimes in the moment. And, and, and I have a whole chapter on how to make joint decisions. That's something I really believe in, which makes marriage unique. You're learning how to come together right. and create an entity or a decision that both people agree with. Agree with have right. a voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want further down a little bit, I want to ask you about premarital counseling because I think that a lot of that. You know, you can bring up a premarital counseling. Uh, we also have, we also have to trust that the discussion will be resolved. Yeah, I, I think that how we look at what resolution is is, is going to be unique in the sense that I hear people talk about compromise. I'll hear people say, um, you know, you you might give something and lose something. I don't think it's compromise. I think it's creating something that you're both going to be able to uh, enjoy together collectively, which looks like something you might not be able to enjoy independently, right? Every morning, my wife, she loves making, um, she, she does a lot of vegetarian, so she does this avocado toast. Nice. I'll make avocado toast with the olive oil, mash it up, salt, pepper, put it on a, a, a roll with some uh, um, balsamic vinaigrette dressing. And, and every morning I, I do that for her and it's not a compromise because I make one for me and one for her. <laughs> so it's really about it's really about producing more, right? You know, right. produce more. <laughs> That's it. Compromise. Get more of it. That's it. That's it. I do the same thing. I wait I make tea for my wife every morning. I make myself a cup of tea as well. Yeah, make me one to make you one. <laughs> We're not, we're not sacrificing a compromising toast to the tea. You got what I got one. Yeah, yeah, let's share it. Matter of fact, let's have tea time together, baby. Let's have tea time, and then we get to have it together, right? <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, 
Get it, Behavioral health, mental health, are they one and the same? And what are the signs that indicate a behavioral health issue? Yeah, so so behavioral health, mental health, <clears throat> those terms are used interchangeably. And the DSM-5 is a diagnostic manual designed to uh, diagnose and demonstrate codes and billing for mental health disorders. What I, what I like about the DSM-5 is it gives you a dialogue or it starts a dialogue around what is mental health disorders, what is, what is a behavioral health disorder in terms of signs and symptoms. So mental health professionals diagnose based on that manual because it gives us the rules to follow. And let's take substance use, for example. That's a common diagnosis, right? So, um, alcohol use disorder. There's usually 11 signs and symptoms that if they present themselves within a one-year period, that indicates a type of diagnosis. So we have a lot of people now on social media everywhere talking about narcissistic personality disorder. Everywhere you look, somebody's a narcissist, right? Most people diagnosing narcissistic personality disorder aren't even counselors. <laughs> just regular people watching TikTok videos all day. So I think, I think you know, the biggest part is making sure that we, we steer the public toward trained professionals. Right. Right? Not coaches. Coaching is not regulated. Don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking. There are a lot of phenomenal coaches with great advice. Advice is great when it comes from people who have training. So look at who the professional is. I think the source is important. And, and that's why you asked me earlier why I chose to be an LMFT. I chose to get the training and when I was in graduate school, and this is something about black folk. We got the gift of gab. Most black therapists know how to create an alliance. We know how to have a rapport, speak the language, make the client feel comfortable. But after about two or three sessions, that's when you can really tell if a therapist is skilled enough. Right. That's why you're like, okay, all right, I like you, but not getting any better yeah. <laughs> you know, I think really like it's so important that we we look at the credentialing and the training of a person and the experience because the licensing is there to protect the public right my license tells you that I'm required every year to get continuing education hours it tells you that if there's a complaint you have someone you can file that with you can't file no complaint on no coach coach not required to get continuing education credits so those are the things about the license that I think they get, you know, forgotten about. Yeah. What if one of the two in the relationship don't want to talk, don't, doesn't want to feel or talk about feelings? Can logic fix everything? Can that person have a successful relationship? Love that question. When I do couples counseling, there's always two, two parallel lines. You got feeling and you got logic. They're both important. It's the space between feeling and logic where the counseling happens. And the logic is gonna be based on what that person might think is right. The emotion doesn't have to even be illogical. It's what the person feels. And, you know, my man cited something that I say all the time to men. I tell men that feeling is fixing. So you sitting there listening to your partner and not giving them any suggestions may not sound logical to you, but your partner really wanted you to just hear them. Because with you hearing them, for that one moment, they were able to hear themselves too. 
See, that hit for him, right? He's like, ah, oh, that's man, it, man. right? Yeah, yourself. Listen, I say it all the time, man. 95% of the time, even though we're all talking to one another, we're talking to ourselves, too. Right. Yeah. Every every single time you open your mouth, you're talking to yourself. Yeah, and that's a gift. It's yes, a sir. gift to be able to provide your partner with the space to simply be heard. And I, and I, early on in my marriage, we were in year two, and this was before I was a trained clinician. And my wife was talking to me about something, and you know, I was trying to have sex, so I was like, all right, let me try something different this time, right? <laughs> I gave her my undivided attention. And I just said, I'm gonna just listen to it. And you know, 15 minutes in, she starts to like have a tear come from her face. I was like, you okay, baby? She said, yeah, she was like, you hearing me? I was like, yeah. And then I recited back what she said about the coworkers and the job. Mm-hmm. And then she started having another tear. She was like, you really heard me? I was like, yeah. And she was like, well, when you see me and you hear me, it makes me want you to feel me. And in that moment, I was like, you done gave me the antidote. I got the I'm going to listen to everything you say. Now. <laughs> if I see you and I hear you, yeah, you. We on. But I was—I became the best listener in the world to my wife. <laughs> oh, guys, I see okay. the question on the thing. You have a question. Yeah, she says, um, "Do you take, take health insurance?" Health So, so I have to give an answer to that, right? So, first and foremost, health insurance is designed as a tool to build for a mental health diagnosis. Unfortunately, when couples come in to see me, they're not attempting to treat a mental health diagnosis. They're looking at their relationship. So I don't build health insurance because foremost, I'm treating two people. You can't build two people's health insurance. If I build insurance, that says to that one person, you're my identifiable patient, you're my client, and your partner is a spectator. So ethically, I don't build health insurance because when I do couples counseling, the couple is the client, not, not one person, two individual people. The other reason why I don't, the, the clientele that I specialize in treatment typically don't desire for their information to be documented. If I file your insurance, a third party is then responsible for paying that out, which means they need notation on what we said. Treatment plan, need probably. Treatment plan, and they're going to need a diagnosis. That diagnosis, especially when you talk about black folk not getting therapy, Imagine you being a black folk trying to get a black person trying to get a concealed carry permit or to hand or to handle a firearm in your state and they do a background check and see that you had a mental health diagnosis. And the therapist elected mm-hmm. a diagnosis you weren't even aware of because that diagnosis paid more. Mm-hmm. Now you have issues with your job or employment or trying to get a concealed carry permit or be a firearm holder or child custody issues or child child agreement because you went through a therapy session and the therapist put something down there because it paid more out and you didn't even know about it. Yeah. Or so that way they could get, that way they could get more sessions also because I know certain diagnosis companies are actually getting more sessions and some insurance companies only pay for a certain amount of sessions. Um, Zane, I know you've been trying to get your question in. Go ahead, man. It's all good. Tell us the importance of uh, a married, married couples being uh in a good light or having a transparent uh communication with the significant other's parents and also with their family (laughs) (laughs) 
Look, so I'm gonna break that down, right? Um, my wife and I, when we got married, my relationship with her family wasn't this tight. And what I found is that the relationship with her family was important to her, and me having a relationship with her family was important to her. We talked about earlier boundaries. When I'm able to not feel like, if, if you're able to feel like your partner's not choosing their family over you, then you can have a good relationship with their family. And when we look at the biblical sense, marriage is you leave your mother and father and become one, a lot of couples miss the mark on that. Men and women, right? There are a lot of men that go by their mama house and their daddy house every day after work before they come home to their wife and kids. It's out of order. So to have a good relationship with your spouse's family, you need to be secure enough to know that you don't have to be in the running for first or second place. You automatically are in first place. Once I learned that I was in first place, it's real easy to have a relationship with my wife's family. But if I'm feeling like I'm competing or jockeying for position, it's a lot harder than that. A lot harder. Yeah, that's a fact. Hope I answered your question. Yeah, you did solid. How important is it in a relationship for a man or woman to be vulnerable? I think vulnerability is something that has to be earned. We don't just walk. We don't walk around giving that away, right? Vulnerability is when you playing poker and you betting the house. You putting it all in. You putting all the chips in. Because if we really break down what vulnerability looks like, vulnerability is a win or a lose. It's a gamble. You could express your feelings to your partner and be vulnerable, and they look at you and they don't get it. You could express your feelings to your partner and they look at you and they understand you. That's the risk that you take when you're being vulnerable. So we want to make sure that we give that risk or we present that risk to those that are deserving of it. And relationships develop. So if you want to be vulnerable and you're in a marriage and you earn that right to have the commitment, then you know that vulnerability doesn't always have the, the happy roses and flowers outcome. Right? I've been vulnerable a lot of times and my wife done dropped the ball on my vulnerability. <laughs> so, so we sometimes think vulnerability is something that's always going to work. It doesn't always work. Yeah. And, and that's the thing what I help couples do. Pick yourself up to be vulnerable again after you had a failed attempt to vulnerable. And a failed attempt, like I said earlier, just may look like they didn't get it. It doesn't mean that you didn't need to be vulnerable. It just means that they may not be ready for your vulnerability. Yeah. You know who has, has a really good book and talks a lot about vulnerability? You ever read Brene Brown? Um, Dan Greatly? Yes. yes. Brene yes. Brown is the vulnerability queen. I use a lot of her material in session. There's a particular video that I use. It's very short. It's a cartoon video. It has over like 20 million views or something crazy. And the, the vulnerability, it's, it's a um, video on empathy. Empathy versus sympathy. You type in Brene Brown, B-R-E-N-E, empathy video. It's actually a cartoon animated video. Three minutes. Best three minutes that I've ever seen on YouTube. And I use that video, but Brene Brown's awesome. I'm so glad you mentioned her work. Scott Mitchell says, isn't said vulnerability defined by the individual and not the listener? I think, I think that when we express ourselves to anybody 
we have this picture in our mind of how we want it to play out. <laughs> like, like you want to express yourself to your partner, and you want them to be able to go, oh my gosh, wow, I hear you, I see you. <laughs> so, so in your mind, sure, sounds great, right? Um, I, I think vulnerability, though, starts with you having a true conviction of how you feel. So to the, to the, to the person's point that asked the question, you know, I was, I was, it was a puppy love. My first relationship, I was in 10th grade, dating this beautiful female, right? But she was the head cheerleader, and I, I was not the star football player. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I told her, I said, hey, you know, I want you to, I want you to, to jump off that ladder with me. You know, I'm willing to really go hard and get to know you, and I want to grow with you. And if you feel like you're not ready to jump off the ladder with me and, and, and be in this relationship, then you're gonna have to let me know now. So that was me being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. She was vulnerable too and told me she didn't want to be in the relationship anymore. So I think I think we have to realize that vulnerability doesn't mean you're gonna get that. Being vulnerable doesn't guarantee you the outcome you want. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability is is what it is, right? Like I had an outcome. The outcome was that she broke up with me. But the good part about it was I understood that if I would have continued to stay with her, I wouldn't have been I wouldn't have been me. Mm. You you spoke earlier and you were talking about decision making in terms of you and your wife where your son was gonna go to school at, and it made me think about um, premarital counseling and the value of it. And then also I thought about like back early in the discussion when we were talking about things like genograms and having those discussions as it relates to okay and families how finance who handles the finances how are decisions made how are arguments um dealt with who's responsible for you know for discipline just all these different things i think that come into play that sometimes these are discussions that we don't have prior to entering into a relationship or entering into marriages so can you talk a little bit about the value of premarital counseling and why it may, I mean, maybe now it's utilized more, but for a long time it felt like it was unutilized from a formal standpoint. It felt more so like premarital counseling was almost like what you said, you go to the pastor and the pastor gives you a good word or two that's supposed to solidify and keep your relationship together long-term, but the actual intangibles and tools and other things that come along with it, those discussions I think explicitly weren't had. Yeah, you, you make a great point. Unfortunately, premarital counseling is still underutilized. Mm. And that's one of the, the things I love to do the most because it's not really just premarital counseling, it's relationship while dating counseling. And the earlier the often, I had a couple come in and they sought my services out and they were only dating for five weeks. Wow. And they, the, the call they asked me, they said, Chris, um, you know, is this too early to start therapy? I said, no. Because I believe in the mantra, it's better to prepare and prevent than repair and repent. So after the five weeks, they started to get connected. Say that one more time, bro. It's better to repair and prevent than repair and prevent and, 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 and repent. You messed me up when I said it slow. It's better to prepare. It's, it's better to prepare and prevent than repair and repent. Right. Nice. And, you know, with this couple coming in within five weeks, they were able to cut through a lot of the BS. They were able to talk about 
what didn't work in past relationships and what they wanted to do differently in this relationship. They were able to set up boundaries. They were able to express some of the initial fears that they might have had. So therapy on the preliminary side, the premarital dating side, can help expedite the relationship. They got closer faster because they were able to have more structured conversations soon in a safe environment. They also had a lot of prevention when it came to, they got to prevent arguments and fights that were triggers. Because you got to remember, we're bringing in our past baggage. So a partner might say or do something that brings back some past trauma and you didn't even know about it. So if you do that premarital therapy on the front end, you're protecting the relationship on the back end. Yeah, that in itself, with I mean, the, the investment, you know, as an intervention, I would say, like, if they came into me, I would say the fact that you're even here five weeks into a relationship, that should be an eye-opener to tell both of them what they think of a relationship, because some people wouldn't even, some people aren't making that investment in 20-year marriages right. to be five weeks in a relationship and to decide that they're going to come into um to counseling. Um, well, recently, they, well, just some context, the couple had also had, they both been married twice prior. Oh. They had kids and they they done a lot of self-work. They they didn't want to waste their time. Okay. You know, and one of my one of my videos on my YouTube channel, I talk about, you know, how to date someone without wasting your time. Mm. You know, getting getting through that quick. And, and and that does require vulnerability. That that's how you can use vulnerability as a tool to not waste your time. Right. If you can if you can be in that initial conversation and let that person know, hey, these are the things I'm expecting. These are the things I desire. And if you find that those life expectations and desires don't line up, then you're not wasting your time and having second, third, fourth dates. Right. Get in the mud, baby. Recently, I, I, uh, for the first time, I actually sat down and watched the Kevin Samuels video. Only because hmm. it came across my Instagram feed. And I, I always hear I always hear about this dude. But I'm like, let me see what this man is actually talking about. So it was, I ended up going to his YouTube page and it was probably like a 15 minute video. And what I found most interesting about his his um, his um his dialogue was it was predominantly women engaged in this conversation with him. And, and for those who don't know who Kevin Samuels is or with the with the um, context of a lot of his conversations are, a lot of his conversations come along, come, they come across as sexist and chauvinistic. But there was there were tons of women engaged in this conversation and back and forth banter with him. What do you attribute that to? And have you had an opportunity to watch a Kevin Samuels video? So, so I've watched a little bit of Kevin Samuels, and, and I'm going to step out for a second and, and talk more about not the content but his process. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the things I acknowledge about Kevin Samuels is that he is uh, extremely professional in his attire. He dresses very well. Okay. Second, right. Hold on, hold on, hold on a second, hold on a second, hold on a second. I always find, I always find it funny when people leave with the here's a here's the the, the best attribute. Your attire is totally good. <laughs> I mean, a man can dress. Okay. Second, he, he's a he's a master marketer, right? Anybody that can find content and material to spark up controversy is a great marketer. So he's a, a phenomenal disruptor. But third and final, the third thing I will say is he believes what he says. He's giving you his authentic raw self. By no means in any video do I believe he's trying to be someone else than Kevin Sanders. And for those three points, 
I may have I have respect for that. Now, do I agree with his content? I don't, but I agree with his process because he's being him. And I believe people are attracted to authenticity. So he has so many followers, and you don't gain that many followers and that following overnight. That's a, that's work. That that's strategic planning. That's research. That's work, and that's being you. So so if he's able to do that from a business perspective, then that entrepreneur to entrepreneur, I, I get all that. But but we also have to acknowledge too, he's not licensed or trained or has any like so. So, so you choose to get your relationship advice from someone that has no training on the topic, and that's that's on you. I mean, that's how I look at it, right? But I'm not gonna sit here and tear some man down who I've never met. That's just not that's not me. Yeah, Nasdaq said he's miserable. <laughs> oh man, yeah. and, and that's the thing. He's a disruptor. We're talking about him now, ain't we? You you got to look at when Trump was in office. Mm-hmm. Everybody said they didn't like Trump. Everybody was talking about him. Oh, right. Yeah, Matt. So tell us, tell us, I guess, or tell the audience where they can find your books and where, if they wanted to, there was a question in the chat about if somebody actually wanted to do a session with you. Do you do telehealth? I do telehealth, but it's usually through a coaching link. The reason why is because you can only practice licensed therapy in the state that you're licensed in. So, as a licensed mental health professional, as a licensed marriage and family therapist, if you live outside of North Carolina. I can conduct coaching legally, but legally I can't do therapy across state lines. Um, there are, there's been some talk of legislation opening up the borders. Um, I know if you if you go through certain platforms, it, it's different. I haven't gotten into the legality of it and, and, and done my research on it. So what I do when I work with couples or clients out of state, I just go through the lens of being a coach because coaching is not regulated. But I always tell people, even though I'm a coach on the title i'm still gonna be a counselor so you guys can read it to that the way you want to read it to it if um, <laughs> that makes sense but i just uh, be ethical in my verbiage uh, <laughs> yeah i do i do take on new clients and on my website chrisamatthews.com you can fill out a questionnaire you can actually submit um a form it takes about less than a minute and, and i'll respond promptly with a, with a consultation call to make sure I'm a good fit. Um, but ChrisAMatthews.com, also the YouTube channel, Chris A. Matthews, and IG, all my all my tags are Chris A. Matthews. And you, you can find some good information online and anything I can do to help. I wanna go back to this comment because I think we, over, we overlooked it. She said, my partner and I saw a therapist for about three sessions, but I didn't believe in his skill set. How often do you, um, how often do you experience that? And what is it, what, what, what do you think exactly is needed in terms of joining for a person who comes in to meet with you? I love that question. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna answer the question, but I wanna make sure the listeners have resources. On my YouTube channel, I actually have a playlist of videos that are designed for people seeking out a well-trained mental health professional that specializes in working with couples. So, so that's a good resource. But just to highlight some of that information, look at the person's credentials for, for first and foremost. Second, have a conversation about their experience. As I shared earlier, a lot of mental health professionals are jacks of all trades. So if you say that you are a therapist and you work with couples, but you only treated one couple in your entire career, you might want to look into that as a consumer. Um, Third, ask the questions that you've asked me. What modalities are you using? 
how do you go about the process? I tell couples my process. All my first sessions are an hour and a half. Why? Because I briefly meet with each partner individually. Then all of my sessions, I'm going to do a genogram. Why? Because I need to understand your family of origin and background. What are you bringing into this relationship? I always give homework. I have my own online courses and materials. So my clients get access to an online platform where they can do courses and materials. I believe therapy is a lifestyle. Working on a relationship and a marriage is a lifestyle. I want my couples and clients to be prepared beyond the therapeutic sessions they have with me. This is about inviting the clinician in, getting what you need, and then you kick the clinician out and you keep going. I'm wondering when you, um, most of the time, when you have individuals who come in to see you, who usually brings them into therapy? Is it usually the husband or the wife? And I only ask that because I'm looking at our chat and it's predominantly, aside from Scott, predominantly female-oriented chat. <laughs> so I love that question. I'm gonna ask you a question. So men will reach out for therapy usually when they're the one that cheated and the wife said, you better call someone to fix this. Men will also reach out to therapy when they feel like they're absolutely right and they want the therapist to be there to oh, prove that the woman's wrong. <laughs> men will reach out for therapy too if they don't know how to break up with a woman and they need someone to help them break up with somebody. I've seen that too. Um, so men do reach out. And then there's certain men that reach out, usually, usually with infidelity. If the man's cheated or been cheated on, they're usually the ones reaching out. Or um, situations where it's like a, a man is dating a woman or married to someone that already has children and they're needing some help managing that relationship with the kid. Or a man reaches out because they've been married before and they're just scared as hell of getting divorced again and they wouldn't do that premarital counseling. Outside of that, all the other reasons women are reaching out. <laughs> Z, you got a question? Oh man, now, I'm just enjoying it right now. Uh, I'm gonna do a fly. I'm gonna do a, I'm gonna do one on the fly. <clears throat> Have you ever like I know you I know a certain stuff you can't disclose or whatever. So I'm gonna just do a hypothetical uh, uh, question. What is the percentage of a man that that marries somebody in the adult entertainment industry? Like what's what's the what's the what's the out what's the what's the effectiveness of the outcome percentage wise? So I've I've actually counseled couples where one one partner worked in the adult entertainment industry. That that is something I have experience with. And, and you know when you look at sheer data and numbers across the board, I, I don't have those numbers to provide you, but I can just share personal experience. One of the things that I notated just in my process as I work with those clients. The way certain people see sex is different. And it's not up to me to judge that. One of the issues that this partner had, it wasn't that his partner was engaging with other people. It was that he didn't feel as connected. He felt like the job was put before him. Mm. So at the end of the day, there are really four feelings that encompass all the issues and reasons that couples seek counseling. And those four feelings are when one or both partners don't feel safe, heard, understood, or cared for. 
So you can take those four feelings across all issues. If you throw an issue right. out, it aligns with that one thing, right? Cheating, safety, right? Communication, not feeling hurt. Parenting and childhood, misunderstandings, right? Spending quality time or, or the lack thereof, love and care. Everything is going to be amongst those feelings. Money issues, security, right? Boundaries, security. It, it's all aligned in one of those four feelings. Yeah. Especially, and, especially, especially if she walking at in that in that club with the good googly boogly. <laughs> um, how about how about how about a polygamist? You ever dealt with a polygamist? Yeah. So, so I, I'm, yeah. I was waiting on that question, right? So, <laughs> this thing, you got polyamorous. You have a lot of different structures of marriage nowadays when it comes to multiple partners, right? And and I'm I'm gonna stand true in my conviction of, of, of how I feel about this, right? When you think of a marriage, you're saying I'm gonna enter this union with this person, and that person is gonna be enough for me, right? So if you now have multiple people within that marriage, you're basically saying one person isn't enough for me, right? And 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 I don't have this debate with people because I'm I don't debate facts I think that's kind of irrelevant right so if one person was enough for you then then why would you need another person like that that's pretty simplistic at this point right so if a person's okay acknowledging that they're not enough for their mate and their mate or them too or they too need multiple people to satisfy them then I understand that but let's call that what it is. Right? Yeah, right, right, let's right, not right. call it something else. <laughs> yeah. and, and this is the thing. I've counseled several couples who've had those type of relationships. Counseling a man who was dating a married woman. The married woman's husband knew about this man. They had an open marriage. So I asked the man who I was counseling, what are you giving this woman that her husband's not? And what is the husband giving the woman that you can't? Right. And he simply gave me a list of what he was able to provide. He gave a list of what the husband provided. And he acknowledged this woman wasn't getting all of the needs met by either the husband or him. So she required two men. And they were comfortable with that structure. Let's call it what it is. Right? So so that's just my, my take on that. Um, if if I'm wrong, then, then I'm, I'm open. I'm a learner. I'm trying to get better every day. But, you, but I haven't you, yet gotten that tape disputed. Wow. You're picking up potential clients. So Jasmine says, I just went to your site. I didn't see the prices. Do you have a set price or do you have a scaling fee based on clients' income? So my set price is $250 for an hour, $375 for the hour and a half, which is required for the first session. And if you go onto my site, fill out the request form, It'll, it'll be the pricing on there. ChrisAMatthews.com is my personal website. RelationshipCounselingGroup.com is the practice website. Yeah. So I do have other clinicians that work under the practice. And they've been trained by myself. They're really good clinicians. Their rates are lower. Um, my, my price is based on just the notoriety that I've obtained nationally. Also on books. And more importantly, being the only African-American 
male marriage and family therapist supervisor in a hundred mile radius of Charlotte, which at the time I believe is the 13th largest city in the country. So, mm. you know, those accolades put me in that position. And you offer um, clinical supervision as well, right? Do for those that are seeking to become licensed marriage and family therapist through the AAMFT website, you can find me as an approved supervisor, and that's something I, I love to do. I also offer um, some scholarships to uh, black men that are in the mental health profession seeking to become licensed marriage and family therapists as well. So, the goal is really to make sure that I'm promoting the field and the craft. My story started out with my wife and I getting pregnant. I walk into my university's counseling center and I didn't see anybody in there that looked like me. Mm. So my yeah. goal is to change that. Yeah, I believe that we need to have more men of color, men of color in this field. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm, I, I'm happy you um, you actually mentioned that because I think that the same way we have like the Ackerman Institutes and things like that, maybe one day we'll have the Chris A. Matthews Institute. Yeah. Well, have, you know, you'll, you'll have created your own model you know, or you have, you may have looked at another model and added on to it and said like, all right, so this is the, it's the Chris A. Matthews, whatever you want to call it, model. Hey, you spot on, man. That's what a lot of the book was about, right? Like the, the book goes around those four core feelings. And, you know, I believe at some point, as, as my kids get a little bit older, I have a 14-year-older, a 6-year-older, and a 3-year-older. So, so once we get that 3-year-older in school, I'll have the opportunity to go back get another degree, work on uh, the dissertation that aligns with the model. So that is the plan, to continue the progression of my career, my craft, and, and, and be a life learner. One of, the, one of the luxuries about being a therapist is that it requires that you're a life learner. It requires that you're constantly growing and getting better in your craft. Yeah, you have to get those, those hours too. Yeah. You have to get, you have to get those hours. So, how, you know, we got, we got your website, we put your social media, up also anything else you want to live up, leave leave our viewers with before we uh, let you go yeah just an opportunity to um, let everyone know that it's mental health awareness month so on my IG I'm gonna be doing a daily mental health wellness tip post for the month of May also launching some videos that are gonna be in alignment with black fatherhood black parent um, black men really working toward doing more promotion for us. A lot of black men don't get the opportunity to hear from other black men. And when we do, it may not always be the best advice or the best guy. <laughs> uh, so, so that's some of the things I'm really excited about doing. And, and I just want to be a vessel. You know, one of the things I say on my website is that I want to earn the right to, to die. I want to earn the right to say that I lived a life worth living and to leave a legacy behind and you know, beyond just, you know, my, my children, which will be my legacy, but more so than anything, just really be used up. I think there's, there's value in, in leaving this earth and you're able to say, wow, I gave everything I had. And, and I found a God-given talent early and I provided them all. God bless you, bro. Appreciate you. Well, thank you for thank you for pulling up and having this conversation with us. I'm in agreement with Marcellus. This was a very informative session. And maybe at some very point much. in time, if we, you know, if you if you're not busy building that Chris A. Matthews Institute, we can have you back on. I would love to. Anytime that you would like me to come back on, just simply go through um, Double Exposure, um, Angela Elderby, Kevin Goins. They're they're phenomenal, and they'll they'll have me booked and pleasure to be on man this is 
one, one of my favorites so far in terms of being around black men and having this conversation. This could be something I could do all day, every day. So thank you for having me. Thank you. I appreciate thank it. You appreciate so everybody in, make sure you like, comment, subscribe, share, follow Chris A. Matthews. Make sure you follow him. No Ideas Original on Instagram. We'll see you guys later this Friday. This Friday, we're supposed to have on Dr. Dre from Your MTV Rap. So that should be a good interview as well. Everybody have a good evening. Good night. Peace. Peace.